Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Adas Alterman. She is founding partner at Plant Medicine Law Group. We're going to talk to her a little bit about what's going on in cannabis, what's going on in general with plant medicine on the legal side, on the regulatory side. Really just kind of understanding how this market starts shaping up, you know, what might be coming at us. We've got a lot of changes going on. A bunch of states have passed legislation, both in cannabis and, and psychedelics, and really just kind of see where are we with this kind of plant-based world, plant-based medicine world, and how things are evolving and changing, and really kind of understanding it from both a legal and a regulatory point of view, and how it's affecting, you know, just how the cannabis, how the industry is growing, and how it's affecting society and culture and economics, and there's a lot of kind of interesting topics here. So excited for this conversation. With that, Hadas, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah. So let's do a little bit of background first, and then we can kind of get into these topics. What got you into plant-based medicine, into cannabis, into psychedelics? Tell me a little bit about the background and how this got started for you. Sure. So from a personal perspective, I feel like plant medicine in some form or another has been in my life since I was old enough to remember And really, maybe even in my blood, 
before <laughs> I was born. I, which sometimes I say that and I'm like, it sounds like my mom smoked weed when she was pregnant with me, (laughs) which is not what I mean. Um, my mom's not a big smoker. She smokes weed like once a year and she turns into a psychic and is just, you'd think she is taking a tab of LSD when she takes a hit of weed. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I want to join next time. (laughs) Yeah. You're invited. But I guess what I mean by that is my Dad was born on the border of Peru and raised by an indigenous Peruvian Uh, woman. And so that medicine, while not directly a part of his life, that ethos and that culture was. And then my mom's family is from Afghanistan. And every Friday night, the men would go to pray at the synagogue and the women would prepare tea made out of opium, out of of Mm -hmm. poppies that the men would come home and, and drink during the Sabbath and the women would smoke a shisha. And so these things have been around. And it's interesting because I can say how they've been around for me and my ancestry. And I think yeah. everyone has the equivalent of their stories with plant medicine and energy medicine. And it's it's interesting to think about what's happened to the world in the past hundred or so years mm-hmm. where those things have been like increasingly criminalized and banished from the kingdom and and are now being brought back and how that might bring back certain other customs or traditions or wisdom, wisdom of the past. And yeah, moving more back into like this, my lifetime, I remember being a kid and getting a stomach ache and being told to go outside and harvest some sage and put it in hot water and drink it. And that's what made my stomach ache go away. And it was effective and easy and felt very normal to me before that reason. And also because I grew up in Marin County, California, where everyone's parents are deadheads and smoked a lot of weed, but were still, you know, successful Drugs and and plant medicine specifically, it's never been something that was particularly, because it wasn't really demonized or put off limits, it was just not something that I was very drawn to. It was just another part of life and a thing that people did. And so I've been really lucky in that I've always had a very easy relationship with plant medicine. And by that, I mean, I've never been incarcerated for it. I have been incarcerated, but not for plant medicine. Um, (laughs) And I have never, you know, I've never suffered from adverse side effects or problematic drug use or anything like that. And, And I do think part of that is because of the, you know, just the context I became familiar with all of these things. And it allowed for sort of a smooth, easy relationship to transpire between me and all of these plants and Yeah, I guess I just see them as allies. Various psychedelics got me, for sure, got me through law school. Mm -hmm. And and now this is what I do and what I talk about all day long. And I think part of that is because I feel that I owe these plants a debt of gratitude for helping make my life what it is. Part of that is I think that it's only fair that other people who don't come from the same situation I come from don't share many of the privileges that I enjoy have just as much access to these beneficial plants as I do, and at the very least aren't being put in handcuffs as a result of wanting to have a relationship with these plants. And it's also just, it's really fun. I wake up every morning and I'm, I'm so excited <laughs> to do what I get to do. Yeah. And excited I get to talk to you today and excited about what my clients are doing. So that's kind of the basic background. 
Yeah. And likewise, it's exciting. It's exciting to have people on the program. And, and yeah, it's one of the reasons that I kind of took my strategic coaching practice and, and started focusing on cannabis. I mean, A, because there was a need, right? I mean, this, you know, cannabis companies are in this kind of growth phase and they're trying to figure out strategy in a really dynamic environment and grow leadership teams and operational capacity and that. But it's also fun. <laughs> it's just like it's interesting people. There's interesting stories. There's so much passion, you know, and there's multiple facets to it. But, the, you know, people are really passionate about being in this industry and that it drives people to be able to do really great things and really interesting things. And it just makes the process much more interesting. So I, I, t- I totally get that. I'm curious, when you got into law, did you pursue law specifically because you wanted to get into plant medicine law? Or was this, was it, you pursued law as a professional practice and then realized you could integrate it with your, with your relationship with plant medicine later? I pursued law because, well, really because my brother had already staked his claim on medical school. So <laughs> the, the law was the only thing left. It was the only thing left, you know, like I'm not good at math, so I wasn't going to be an accountant or anything like that. <laughs> I mean, that's not the whole truth, but it's part of it. I think I finished undergrad and felt like I needed more skills if I was going to be of service to the real world in any way. Mm -hmm. And I love school. And I also think that I, I grew up not feeling taken very seriously a lot of the time. And I think part of that is, you know, being a woman, maybe part of it is being a woman of color in certain situations. I think For sure, part of it is the tone and the cadence of a native Californian speaker. And I felt like, you know, the JD behind my name would give me some level of power and authority. And it did. And it's interesting to me that I had to pay hundreds and thousands of dollars and (laughs) go through three years of grueling school to feel, I don't know, I guess to feel like I was being taken seriously. Yeah. And it's not something I regret doing by any means, but it's just it's an interesting an interesting side. Yeah. When did it kind of hit you or when when did you decide that you you really were going to focus on kind of plant medicine law or or take the kind of the the legal regulatory aspect, you know, of this industry and apply yourself professionally to it? So, California legalized for adult use the same month I think I passed the bar. So, I had just graduated And I felt like it was really clear that this was what I was going to pursue as an attorney because it was just so interesting and so new and so exciting and and weird. And it's still weird. And plant medicine, (laughs) I mean, psychedelics are incredibly weird. And I think that one of the things that I didn't like about law school was I felt that I was having to tone down the parts of me, both, you know, my personality, but also the way I function intellectually to fit into this very status quo, very mainstream mold. And I was so tired of it. And I don't think it made the experience better from an educational perspective by any means. And here was this industry that was available to me all of a sudden that was full of people who used to be drug dealers and have existed in, you know, non-traditional worlds. And it's, you know, cannabis is still sort of looked at as this, this vice and this alternative thing. And I was just really excited by it. And I think my reasons for working with, you know, moving into the psychedelic space professionally are a little bit different. But the strong parallel I draw is that I was actually just talking to one of my law partners about this, how when we meet someone, we have a call with someone and they're from the psychedelic space, they're from the cannabis space and they're weird. 
like they're just, they're not adhering to like the social norms of a meeting with lawyers or they have like a crazy psychedelic background or they're telling us, you know, insane stories about their lives or whatever. I always feel like, okay, we're the normal people. Like we're like the, the boring lawyers entering their world. Like psychedelics is weird. Plant medicine is weird. The cannabis world is weird. And we're the mainstream coming into it. And it's not on us to make their world less of what it is. It's on us to make our world more like theirs because, you know, other, you know, there's obviously certain things that there's cross pollination that needs to happen both ways for sure. But I think that one of the things I really appreciate about having my own practice and working with partners who I think I see eye to eye with on many things is that we can do this on our own terms and we can participate in the culture in the way that feels good to us and in a way that feels beneficial for our clients and for the culture itself and for the future of both of these industries. Yeah. And so let's kind of categorize or, or, or clarify some of these terms and stuff. So we're talking about cannabis, we're talking about psychedelics, we're talking about plant-based medicine. How do you organize or categorize or bucket some of these things from a um, you know, professional point of view, the way you look at the industries? That's a good question. So cannabis is, I mean, you have THC and you have CBD. Mm-hmm. Anything involving THC is much more heavily regulated and federally still illegal and in many states still illegal and therefore in what we call a legal gray zone. Because even if you, yeah, you know this, even if your state is legal, you're still breaking federal laws. Mm. Um, And then you have CBD, which is comparatively extremely easy and not regulated. And, you know, you don't have to deal with 280E and you don't have to deal with interstate issues. Um, It's just a delight in that way. And then you've got the plant medicine and psychedelics and entheogen, those buckets. And those that's where things get a little bit more blurry. Really, the overarching categorization is psychedelics. And then under psychedelics, you've got synthetic psychedelics like MDMA mm-hmm. or LSD. And then you've got naturally occurring psychedelics, sometimes referred to as entheogens, which would be uh, ayahuasca, San Pedro, mm-hmm. mushrooms, et cetera, et cetera. And within those plant-based psychedelics, plant medicine, there is actually another, I mean, technically mushrooms are not a plant, they're a fungus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm like, it, that's <laughs> yeah. too many words for me to, to brand <laughs> our firm as. So those are basically the buckets. Oh, and there's also ketamine. I don't know if I mentioned ketamine as a synthetic. And then I think within that, there's these overlapping categories of medical and therapeutic and recreational use. And those for psychedelics and for cannabis, but I think more interestingly for psychedelics, are still being very, very much negotiated. And those categorizations are, I guess, the difference between cannabis and, I don't know, ayahuasca is not objective. And the difference between cannabis and psychedelics, some people think cannabis is psychedelic. I don't. I think it's, that is an objective difference. But the, okay. the delineations between you know, drugs and medicine, that's something, that's a construct. And like with all constructs, it has, you know, we create it, we give it meaning, and its meaning has implications on cultural, social, political, legal levels. And so I find that like a a really interesting ongoing conversation. 
Yeah. So, and I, and and I guess, how do you categorize, or or how do you how do you separate out the categories of things like cocaine or heroin, which you know maybe synthetic, maybe plant based, but is this about the effects on the body or the applications, or like why why separate these things in that way? Right. So, I'll give you the um, I'll give you my Hadass as a, just a person mm-hmm. answer, and then I'll give you Hadass as a lawyer answer, and they're they're different. As a person, I think you know I think. When speaking just as a person, not an expert on anything, I sort of maybe I'm like a little bit more idealistic and naive. And I think that if something works as medicine for someone, who am I to say that it's not medicine? And if something in a tiny amount works as medicine for someone, but in a large amount is more of, you know, more towards the poison end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm they should be able to figure out their relationship with that substance. And it's, you know, probably none of my business unless they're doing something that infringes on on my rights. And I think, you know, it all feels very, very subjective and super theoretical. And like, you just want to smoke a joint and talk about it for six hours. And then as a lawyer, I think a couple things. I think that right now there's research happening There's FDA clinical trials, there's the work happening at Johns Hopkins, there's NYU Langone, where people are participating in rigorous studies where they are, you know, on track to drawing really more and more conclusions every day that show in no uncertain terms the value of certain substances, some synthetic, Mm -hmm. some not, for treating conditions from which many people suffer and some of which are not yet treatable by anything that currently exists or are not yet treatable for the most severe cases by anything that currently exists. And so really for me, it's pretty simple. It's like if there's something that helps someone not suffer mm-hmm. and and there's not collateral damages that are harmful to society in giving that person access to whatever that substance is, they should have it. They should not be a crime. They should be able to do what they want to do. I think that's, so that's decriminalization. And then there's legalization, which is in some ways, you know, gives the state more space to regulate um, because when, let's say, okay, so psychedelics, psilocybin, for example, is decriminalized somewhere and there's going to just be a lot of underground practitioners running their clinics. People aren't going to not do it because it's not legal. There's just going to be a different kind of consequence and a risk people are more likely to take on. With legalization, I think if it's full-on legalization, we can have unfettered access to certain substances whenever we want them. I think that some things should be protected. I don't think that there's any studies out there (laughs) saying that like cocaine or heroin are good for anyone. Yeah. And so I don't think that they're medicine. I think that if we want to, you know, call them drugs, which I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that a good way of dealing with drugs is, is by criminalizing them because really it's not drug criminalization. It's not, you're not punishing drugs. You're punishing and criminalizing drug users. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's something I really try to keep in mind in thinking about all of this stuff, which is that, yes, we're talking about substances, but that's not the point. The point is how these substances impact people's lives. 
and there's there's helpful use and there's problematic use. So how do you treat like the the adult use market for cannabis, which you know we've kind of made this you know distinction in the cannabis world that you've got sort of medical use and then we've got adult use and you know literally the same plant, same products, you know, same formats for the most part, but we've decided to make this kind of bifurcation. I mean, do you think this is a, you know, an appropriate and effective, a useful way of doing it? Do you think this is, you know, problematic? I mean, what, what's your take on how the cannabis market is played out? And, and do you think that some of these other markets, psilocybin and, and MDMA and ayahuasca and these things, like will follow a similar path or not and why? Interesting. So with cannabis, I think that the way we initially got our foot in the door for legalization was through making the argument that cannabis was medically useful and for some people medically necessary mm-hmm. to either keep them from living lives of suffering or, you know, some some other horrible fate. Yeah. So because medical use is it's something that we can use to we can justify legalization or expanded access because of medical use to legislators, hesitant voters, et cetera, et cetera. I think that it's often gone first, right? Like first there's medical access in a state at the state level and then there's adult use. It typically happens, it never happens in reverse order for sure. Um, And I think that's because it is, it is a foot in the door strategy. And I think, you know, on some level, like the difference between the two in California, it's, it's basically a legal fiction other than taxation. Um, I think medical cannabis is taxed slightly more favorably to consumers because the idea is this is medicine for people and they need to be able to access it. Um, It's still taxed way too high and still not affordable, but there's at least like some semblance of an attempt. So there's that. And I think different treatment on that level makes sense. I think that it is valuable to think about cannabis as medicine because we need to keep researching it and we need to understand what it is useful for and what it's not useful for. And if it's harmful, what are the effects that are harmful? And other than that, you know, I think, I think that when we like, no one is ever going to take Prozac for fun, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So we don't need to think, I mean, for so long, or like you don't go get a flu shot for fun. You don't get an MRI for fun. So I think like in recent Western medical paradigms, it is like a very, there's just a distinction between, there's a very clear distinction between medicine and recreation. And I think like I was talking about in the beginning, looking back into, you know, older examples, you know, in history or just different cultures that haven't modernized in the same way um, the West has, there isn't necessarily that distinction happening in the same way. And I think that like health is looked at differently. And I think that wellness is looked at differently. And I think that, you know, I think I'm like, you've probably noticed stumbling to answer this question, particularly with respect to me, is something that I understand in a way that's ontologically different than how I understand, you know, the law or most things I encounter in life. And it's because it's rooted in these indigenous cosmologies that just don't have the same, like, grid as, you know, 2020 United States does. And so I think that there's, we as Westerners are now being invited to enter those spaces and to like 
glean wisdom from these traditions and from entheogens. And it's great. And I think that one of the things that I struggle with is figuring out like, what are the definitions that carry over and what are the definitions that don't? Yeah, I'm curious about, and I may be jumping ahead sort of too too quickly on some of this, but how do you feel like the this kind of Western, modern, pharmaceutical kind of industry approach to medicine has structured the way, you know, we've kind of approached cannabis and some of these these other plant-based medicines in terms of, you know, treating them as a medicine from a pharmacological or a, a pharmaceutical kind of view and, and how is that problematic or how has that affected things and, and where is it working, where is it not working and, and what might we need to change? I think that the the most, the boldest part of that paradigm is the idea that when you're sick, you go to an expert and the expert gives you something that only the expert has access to, whether it's because they hold a license from the DEA to give you a prescription to a restricted, heavily regulated medicine, or because they're a dentist or because they're a surgeon. And with some things like, you know, dentistry and orthodontia and surgery, that makes sense, right? Like, I don't want to drill holes in my own teeth. That sounds terrible. (laughs) And, you know, like, I don't think anyone should be doing spine surgery on themselves either. But I think that I think that there are a lot of things, a lot of ways in which we can be self-healers and the this creation of the medical expert that's gone to school for so many years and learned a very specific way of practicing medicine and relating to bodies and relating to patients, I don't know that that's always helpful. And I say that as someone whose family is full of doctors who I respect and who yeah. I, I call with questions all the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that SSRIs are effective for a lot of people and they save a lot of lives. And so do mood stabilizers. And and when I have conversations where I'm critiquing Western medicine, it's never to say that those things that are helpful should be taken away from people. It's only ever saying that we need to have an alternative parallel system for people who want it. And some people want to participate in both at different times for different reasons. And I think that one of the things that's really important when we talk about psychedelic-assisted therapy is that, especially when we're talking about plant medicine and entheogens and traditional medicines, is that we don't get to a place where we're regulating these medicines in a way that demands that if you're going to be the person administering the medicine, you have to have a medical degree. Because that's going to exclude most people who actually know how to work with the medicine. So it's going to be, you know, practically and logistically a big problem. You look at like Jersey here. I mean, so we just, we voted in this, this last election to legalize adult use in the state of New Jersey. And, but one of the things that I think is, you know, coming up a part of the regulatory framework is, is, you know, home grows, right. And, and, you know, it's a big issue, right? Like uh, people want to be able to grow in their own cannabis, but the regulatory framework that seems to be kind of coming to the surface at this point does not allow that, you know, that seems like uh, where this kind of problem or where this issue kind of comes to the, you know, comes to a froth where, when you look at the regulatory frameworks, like, are you allowing people to kind of grow their own cannabis or are we making this, are we kind of forcing this into a kind of commercial regulatory environment, even for personal use? So does this really get us where do we need to be or not? Yeah, that's a perfect example of the problem. That's exactly it. And right now in New York, 
there's the the MRTA and the CRTA. Those are the two different contenders for the bills that will eventually legalize cannabis. And the MRTA, which is more progressive, introduced by the legislature, it does allow for up to six plants for adult use and six plants per household. And I think maybe more for medical. I think probably more for medical, but I'm not sure. And there is a cap, but six plants is a lot for a household. Yeah. That's great. If you're health successfully growing six cannabis plants in your closet, like I'm coming over. That's hard. <laughs> I want to see your closet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let me in. And then the, the, uh, the CRTA, which was introduced as part of Governor Cuomo's bill, prohibits home cultivation for adult use. So like you said, totally just pushing things into the consumer market, classifies any amount of plants, at least a misdemeanor. And then medical patients have to register with the state to obtain a permit, which by the way, allows the state to enter the patient's house at any time for inspection. Yeah, exactly. They're restricted to four plants total per household, which if you're consuming cannabis for medical needs, four plants total really might not be enough, depending yeah. on, you know, your if you're making an extract that you need to take a lot of every single day or mm-hmm. something like that. Oh, and actually, now that I think about it, um, medical patients are they're restricted from making consumable products. So they oh, can't yeah, right. they can't even do that. Yeah. And again, if any of these limits are broken, it's at least a misdemeanor, they could get arrested. It's really one of the things that I, I'm lamenting right now is that legalization and liberalization of access is it's happening, but it's happening in ways that I find really concerning. And this is mm. this is a, a prime example of one. Yeah, yeah. And so what's on your kind of list of things to kind of focus on that you hope we address, you know, legalatory from a legal point of view, from a regulatory point of view in the in the coming, you know, years to really make sure that we're bringing the the plant to people that really need it in a an effective and you know reasonably reasonable and just way you know from a culture and social point of view so i think the first thing that's got to change and you know for places like new york has ha- has to <laughs> not happen is um unaffordable tax rates so california is going to collect a billion dollars in taxes this year from cannabis 777 million of that 1 billion is from excise taxes and 300 million is from, you know, just this past quarter itself. And I mean, I guess the third quarter. And the issue here is that there's going to be like around 3 billion in total revenue from legal cannabis sales in California. There's going to be 8.7 billion in total revenue from the illicit market. So that's a lot of cannabis that's going not only in all over the state, but all over the country. And the fact that the regulated market is so big, I mean, ironically, that's a lot of cannabis income that's still untaxed. So the state is losing. And the reason that's happening is because the taxes are so high, such that the margins become impossible. There are momentous barriers to access for operators operating in either the black market or the gray market and wanting to move into the legalized space. They can't, they can't afford it. And that's purely a taxation issue. And it's sort of, it's a death spiral that California has created for itself. And, you know, that's, I see that in my day to day, I see that affecting operators, but 
another sort of victim of those externalities is patients and consumers because they're the ones that are having to pay like $70 for an eighth if they want to know that they're buying legal cannabis. And then in New York, and I don't know exactly what the deal is with New Jersey, but I can say in New York, the legislature bill, the MRTA is proposing like a 22% tax rate, which is really high. And the CRTA, which is the governor's bill, is proposing a 45.5% tax rate. No, really? 45.5. Um, and it's, you know, an estimate. And that 45.5 would be like throughout the entire supply chain. Yeah, okay. But an eighth would cost around $70. And I think that, so again, that's like difficult for operators, difficult for consumers. And specifically when we're talking about operators, it's going to destroy the chance of building small craft cannabis businesses. It's just, it's just not possible for small operators. It's unsustainable. And I think that, I think that especially when you're looking at a system where there's very few limitations on vertically integrated companies, um, it makes it virtually impossible for small businesses to have a chance to compete. And so I think remedies that I would like to see, one, reasonable, affordable tax rates, two, multi-tier licensing structures. The craft beer industry is a really great model of this that restricts vertical integration. So you don't have an oligopoly in the market um, and yeah. you have multiple points of entry into the system with affordable licensing fees. I think that, that that's really fair. And then I think the other thing, if I may for a moment switch to um, yeah. federal cannabis issues. So a lot of people know that the House voted on the MORE Act, the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act. Mm-hmm. It passed which is awesome, but there's two big problems I see with it. One, there's major permitting issues because there's language in there that says that if you so much as been enmeshed in previous or current legal proceedings involving a felony violation of either federal or state yeah. law related to cannabis, you are seen as suspect and that you're potentially not likely to comply with the act if given a permit. Mm-hmm. Even if that proceeding resulted in an acquittal or a dismissal of charges, they can deny you a permit or take a permit away on those grounds. And it's it's just incredibly broad and it leads to ridiculous situations like a situation where there's no criminal charges of any kind filed after an arrest, but there was a civil asset forfeiture proceeding, which happens all the time that mm-hmm. alleged a felony violation and it gets dismissed, you're still suspect under the MORE Act of future noncompliance. And there's no time limit on when these proceedings took place. So you could have a permit denied based on something that happened in <laughs> this, you know. You know? Yeah. And it's insane. These provisions only pertain to cannabis convictions, meaning that <laughs> if you've been making meth or selling exactly. cocaine, you're fine. Yeah. And so basically, it's like the MORE Act says that it's remedying the effects of the war on drugs, but it's discriminating against victims of the war on drugs and saying they can't participate in the market. And it's just, it's mind boggling to me. Um, And I think that the other thing that uh, the other bone I have to pick with more is that it's just these federal cannabis, there's so rarely these bills are written in bipartisan ways. This, the more I've got one Republican, got one Republican vote. And it's not because all Republicans are, I mean, look at South Dakota, look at Montana, look at Mississippi. And personally, like I know plenty of Republicans who love to smoke weed. It's just that there's no incentives for bipartisan support. And to me, 
and I don't know, cause I'm not in the room where this stuff is happening, but to me, what it feels like is, um, it's an election or it, you know, was an election year and a bunch of progressive representatives wanted to signal to their electorates that they are pro cannabis and they wrote a bill that no Republicans were going to sign on to. <laughs> they knew that was going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, luckily there's one Republican in Florida that voted for it. But like, yeah. that's, I mean, that's an anomaly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating uh, kind of industry and dynamics that we're dealing with. And uh, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? People can learn more about my firm at our website, which is www.plantmedicinelaw.com. I'm also always happy to chat about any and all drug policy things, any and all, you know, everything we've talked about and more. Um, my email address is hadas at plantmedicinelaw.com. And hadas is H-A-D-A-S. Great. I will make sure that those links and uh, email in the in the show notes so people can click through and get that information. Hadas, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. This was really fun. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.